Morning, Carpenter's Way. Um, and Happy New Year. Um, why don't you take a minute, stand up, find someone a little bit spread out so you may have to travel a little further this morning and greet somebody, hug their neck.
I'm getting texts from people who are watching online, and I want to thank you for letting me know. It's half credit for watching online, so. But uh, it's rainy and uh, Christmas time and New Year's. Julie, wish you a happy New Year's early. I think that's bad mojo. I I'm not sure. I don't. Okay, never mind. Um, but it is great to see you here this morning. It's great to, those of you watching online, we're glad you're watching with us. I wanna highlight a few things, announcements that we have going on. And for those of you who aren't aware, we don't have our normal Bible study after uh, worship today. Uh, in fact, uh, as most of you are aware, uh, Sherry Johns went to be with the Lord this year and we're gonna be having, or this last week, and we'll be having uh, her funeral or her memorial service uh, at two o'clock this afternoon. And uh, so we'll be preparing that uh, for that beginning around 11.30. So uh, please be praying for the family. Uh, this is going to be an ex exceptionally difficult time. As uh, you know, Brooke grew up and Matt grew up in the church. And Brooke's going to be getting married on January 18th. And so there's a lot of emotions going on. So uh, be praying for that family. And I know you know them very well. And uh, love on them as, uh, as, time, as time allows and, and, and you think of them. Pray for them. Uh, and let's uh, get back to this. Uh, there's some. If you open your worship guide, let me highlight a few things for you. There's not going to be Wednesday evening service because that's New Year's, and uh, uh, you'll have family things, eating pork and sour. What do Texans do on New Year's Day? What do you eat? Fireworks. I know that, but like pork. Do you do pork and sauerkraut? Black-eyed peas. That sounds right. I, you know, nobody said brisket. You guys do brisket for everything. You do brisket for birthdays and days off and cabbage, somebody said? Cabbage. So what's the difference between sauerkraut and cabbage? It's basically the same thing. And this is when it turned. It's ugly. Okay, stop it. He's not talking to you anymore. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Anyway, I hope you have a, a wonderful, wonderful New Year's and you're careful with your fireworks because I'd rather not spend New Year's Day with you in the hospital. So just be careful. Light it and run, okay? All right, enough on that. That's, that's my advice for your New Year's uh, fireworks stuff. Um, uh, uh, Carpenter's Way folks, I want to remind you, we're, we're going to clean up all the Christmas stuff uh, next week, but out there next to where we make up our coffee and stuff, there is mailboxes, and you might have gotten Christmas cards or, uh, in there, and so make sure you check your box to make sure that you've got all your cards. I wanted to remind you of that. There isn't going to be a GPS today, uh, and so your kids will stay with you here. I think that pretty much uh, does it for the announcements I want to make. You can, uh, you can read in here. We've got activities coming up. Camps are coming up, believe it or not. The new year starts fast and furious, and uh, so make yourself aware of that. Because of um, the holidays and how they fall this year, it's open and closed. If you need us, just email us, or you can call me, or you can even you can even call up to the office, and if nobody answers, you can call through the tree and leave a voicemail for the pastoral staff member you want, and it'll get to us. So uh, make, make use of that. We're here to serve you and, and love on you a little bit. Um, I'm very excited this morning because... Uh, you're going to hear from my son, Zach, who uh, preaches here periodically, and he's going to be sharing the word with us this morning, and I'm excited to hear from him. Have you prepared yet, son? <laughs> no. Good. So we're real excited to hear what the Lord is going to say through him, and we have the crook ready. I'm just kidding. He's been working hard on it. Uh, so for those of you who don't know, Zach is a graduate of Moody Bible Institute, studied uh, pastoral ministry. He has uh, served the last year at Fellowship Church in... <laughs> Uh, Dallas working their IT. He is no longer doing that. He's working for an IT company and getting involved in a church in Dallas there, but we're always glad to have 
him uh, come and open the Word of God, and, and we're excited about that. So I think that does it for the announcements I want to make. If, uh, if we can have our ushers at this time come forward. Um, if uh, you are visiting with us this morning, we ask that you not give. You could sing, you could get into the Word with us, but this is the one part of the service that belongs to those of us who attend here regularly. We're just glad to have you with us this morning. So let's uh, commit our, our time to the Lord. Father, we thank you uh, that we can gather this morning in hope uh, of your promises that you've made to us. And, and, and Lord, I, I pray, um, I want to pray for the Johns family this morning as they're reeling. Um, I just pray that you would be near to them. Father, uh, Sherry was loved by many in this community, and uh, there's a lot of folks hurt. Uh, we were at Walmart yesterday, and, and, the, and, and some, of the, some of the workers there were talking about this. It's um, Lord Jesus, uh, be our hope, be our comfort. You promised that uh, you would be a very present help in time of trouble, and so I ask that you would do that for the family, for her family from Louisiana that has come in. And, um, Lord, I pray that somehow in your supernatural power that today would be a day of encouragement and hope in, uh, in a situation that seems hopeless. Father, I thank you that your word speaks to these things, and I thank you that for what we're going to hear from Zach this morning as he opens a very um, a very relevant text to, to where we are emotionally right now. And Lord God, uh, I just ask that as Christmas has come to a close that we wouldn't forget um, that after you were born, you committed yourself to 33 years on this planet, 33 difficult years. Difficult. Uh, you, you ran the course and fulfilled your task. May we be, as the new year comes, as committed as you were to fulfilling our tasks to the glory of the Father. We commit the, re commit the rest of our service to you. Uh, may the things of the world grow strangely dim as we focus on you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
morning I'm going to be just a few verses out of Romans 8. Sure. And um, before I do that, it's um, this whole Christmas season, I've been talking about Advent and what Advent means. Literally waiting for an arrival and just the hope that we have. We look back to Israelites had been, been looking forward to that. And then we even looked into what it is like for us that we're in that season where we are hoping and looking forward to the day when Christ returns and when we see him face to face. So here are some, a couple of verses out of uh, Romans 8. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he revealed to us here. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal to his children. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. And we too wait with eager hope for the day when God would give us our full rights as children, including the body And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us no power in the sky above or on the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So right now, I ask you to just um, listen in as Katie sings a song that um, kind of reiterates this and our hope that we have. If you know some of it, feel free to sing along.
You guys give them a round of applause. That was beautiful. Seriously. Oh, thank you. You didn't have to give me one. That's okay. Thank you, though. Okay. Light crowd. That's all right. So uh, I'm really excited about this sermon. Uh, I, I say that about every sermon. I'm really excited about this one because I think it's super timely. Um, and <laughs> I mean, have you ever heard a preacher go up, though, and say, this sermon has nothing to do with going, what's going on right now? <laughs> No, you haven't, but I do think this one is like insanely timely for where uh, the church seems to be, where, where I, think, I think we are at in, in the season of the year, and where we're at in life. Um, I know it's, it's really timely for, for Hannah and I. It's been a, a busy season, and this sermon spoke to me probably more than it'll speak to any of you. Um, but I'm excited about it. Um, and I, I always ask, uh, as, I, as I go into a sermon, um, that... You pray with me, and you pray for me as I preach. This is nothing of my own accord. This is nothing of my own ability. But uh, this is actually completely the work of God. I know that nothing in this room this morning, we will not learn anything. Nothing will happen outside of the work of the Holy Spirit. So I, I ask that you pray with me, and you pray for me uh, as I preach. So with that, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for my dear friends here, God. I pray that you just uh, enlighten our minds to what you have. God, I pray that you uh, grow us through this time, that you encourage us, you edify us, you um, um, just bring us to a point of, of continual repentance in you because we find our dependence in you in all things. God, I pray that this text speaks to us and we, we look at it from a, perhaps a perspective we have not looked at before. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I will never forget the moment. It was only a few years ago, but it was, it was a moment I would, I would pretty much never forget. Uh, for those of you who do not know, for, for many years, I actually, during college and stuff, would travel part-time part and sometimes full-time, I would travel and perform magic. It was exactly as nerdy as you can imagine. And I would do mentalism shows, I would do magic shows, I would do escapes, all this stuff, and I would share the gospel with people, and some of you have seen it, some of you have not, but this is just something I did for like probably eight or nine years since 
high school. I haven't done it as of late because we've been a little busy. <laughs> and I, but, uh, but I would do this. And I remember a couple years ago, I was doing a series of shows at a camp. And uh, I had, I had done a, I'm doing a show that this was pretty standard of what I had done, except I added one trick, one new trick. It was the finale. And I saw this trick uh, for the first time, and I saw it, and I was like, I've got to do it. This is an amazing trick. So I, I wrote the trick into the show, and the idea of the trick was I would give uh, about four different people an option, right? So I would have a series of like 10 books, and I'd have one person choose a book. Then i have one person select a random page out of that book. Then I'd have another person select a random line number out of that book. And then I'd have another person select a random word, uh, word out of that line in that page in that book. So basically, we get like four degrees of random information here. And then at the very end of the trick, I would come out and reveal a prediction that shows I predicted the word, I predicted the line number, the word number, the page number of the book, and I predicted the names of each individual that helped me decide that. It was a hugely impressive trick. I loved it. In fact, it's a trick that David Copperfield has done for a long time. It's a really, really, really good trick. And so I practiced this trick for like six months putting it through the paces, testing it, putting, like, testing it on like focus groups, making sure I got all the kinks out so that I was ready for this uh, four weeks of shows. So the four weeks came and rehearsals were good. I was feeling good about the trick. First show came, the show went flawless. It was a great show, energy was, 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 was bumping, it was a fun time, there was like 1,200 students there. And I get to this finale, to this trick, and, and I'm feeling good about it and each step is going strong and I go to reveal my prediction, and I reveal the prediction, and it is a completely wrong word from what the actual word was, from what the person had selected. And so, and people ask me this all the time, do you mess up in shows? And the answer is yes, I would mess up pretty much every show. It's just I was really good at hiding it. In fact, it was really funny, I had a magician friend of mine come to a show one time, he's like a professional, he does like improvs around the country, he's really good, and after the show he's like, Zach, you actually are terrible at the magic, but you're really good at talking yourself out of situations. <laughs> and so I, so I don't know if that's an insult or a compliment, but I took it. And so I was really good at hiding my mistakes. I would me mess up constantly. But you can't hide this, right? So I've got a prediction here and a word here that doesn't match. And so I'm like, oh no, that's weird. <laughs> I knew that was gonna happen. And so we go, I go and have the, the people, uh, the volunteers look at the book, and it was one word away from the correct word. I was one word off on that page. So I was like, isn't that still impressive? <laughs> and, and, and the show was over. That was it. So I go through a week of trying to work out the kinks, working through each step, because this, this was a kind of routine where every single step was dependent upon the last to make it happen. And again, I've had it successful. I had tested it. And so the second show comes up. And I'm nervous, but we get to that point of the show and I'm feeling strong, I'm very careful. I eliminated any like, opportunity for failure in this, in this one. And we come to the prediction and it's wrong again. <laughs> and at this point, Lord and I are having a conversation <laughs> in my head. So I was wrong again and I'm like, oh boy, okay. And so we look at the book and again, it's one word off. And I just wrote it off, hey, isn't that still impressive? <laughs> and so we move on, third show that comes up. And this, this, this was again another about 1,000 students. Third show comes up. And I, I, I actually like reduced the trick down, right? So now there wasn't a choice of books, there was one book. Now they got to choose a page number, but I was there making sure they were choosing the right page number. I mean, I was making sure this trick was flawless. And we get to the prediction and it's wrong again. And I was blown away 
I was blown away. And so the fourth, I had a fourth show. I actually didn't, I just, I just threw the trick out. I gave up and I haven't done it again since. <laughs> but I just royally messed up that trick. Absolutely messed it up. Not once, not twice, but three times. And it was because, I realized it was because I was, I was so excited about the end result of that trick. I was so excited about how amazing it was gonna look that I didn't emphasize the importance of each step along the way. See, it was so critical to, be, to focus in on that person selecting that book. It was so critical to focus in on that person selecting that page, that person selecting that word, to make sure every step was happening so it appeared like all this was happening fluid. But I wasn't putting enough emphasis on each step of the way so that the end result kept failing. In fact, I, I was underestimating entirely how important the process was to get to the end result. And while many of you, if not all of you, are probably not magicians, I am sure you felt a same, similar level of humiliation and failure. In fact, I, I'm sure maybe all of us have struggled with trying to find the right place, because I would, I would try to fix the trick, right? I'd go one way, then I'd go the other way too far. I couldn't find a sweet spot in this plan of the trick to achieve the goal. I would say this is precisely also a struggle of a Christian walk, right? So, so, so many of us ask, how do I find what God's plan is for my life? How do I find that sweet spot to make sure I'm following every step, every part of God's plan so I get to the end result? How do I make sure the trick of life happens successfully? Or maybe, maybe you ask this question, I, I hear this all the time, how does God's sovereignty work in my life? Which is like asking how Santa Claus figures out how to get to every house <laughs> on Christmas, right? That, it's so outside of a realm of understanding. Or, or maybe you've, you've, you've even struggled with this question. Maybe you've, you've asked, how does our weakness play into God's sovereignty? And actually, the question I want to really focus on right now, because my, my weaknesses, obviously, were playing into the end result of that trick, right? I also want to, I want to look at this question, man, do my weaknesses, this is a question all of us have asked, I guarantee you, do my weaknesses and my failures get in the way of God's work? Do my weaknesses and failures get in the way of God's work? Because while none of us would have the guts to ask that in church, after you sin, I guarantee you've asked it. I guarantee you've thought, oh, am I getting in the way? Am I getting in the way? Lord, how is your plan moving forward when I am the interruption? That's what I want to look at today. So, so, so we're going to be looking at a passage that actually is looked at a lot in this time of year. It's out of Matthew 2. If you have your scriptures, turn to Matthew 2 with me. That's 13 through 23. Matthew 13 through 23. If you have the app, you're not as holy, but that's okay. Open up the app and uh, tap there, I guess. That's okay. I'm preaching off an iPad, so no less holy. Matthew 2, 13 through 23. Let's read this together. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. Or search for the child to kill him, rather. That night, Joseph left for Egypt in the, with the child and Mary, his mother. And they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under. 
based on the Wiseman's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. Quote, a cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel, because those who were trying to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up and returned to Israel with Jesus and his mother. But when he learned that the new ruler of Judah was Herod's son, Archelaus, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee. So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophets had said, he will be called a Nazarene. And this passage is very famous because we read it around Christmas. Uh, it's popular to look at at Christmas because it just follows the, the story of the birth of Christ, the nativity. Um, it's preached on a lot, but I want to look at it from a historical perspective. There's a lot here that I think we miss. There's a lot here. And so the first section we're going to look at is just verses 13 through 15. Uh, it says this, I want to read it again so we can jump in. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Uh, our, our first point here on this is going to be God's sovereignty can push us into places that seem totally irrational. See, at this point, Jesus is somewhere between six months and two years old. It's not precisely known when this happens. The wise men had just come. If you didn't know, they don't come on the night of his birth. They come sometime after. The wise men had just come, and the wise men were supposed to return to Herod after they had seen Jesus to report on this new king. They, of course, did not because they, 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 they felt it was not good. They were warned, so they did not go back to Jerusalem to report to Herod. They moved on. They passed Jerusalem, and Herod was angry, and then we get our next verses. But God saw what was going to happen and sends an angel, the angel to Joseph to wake him up and tells him to wake up, grab his family, and go on to Egypt. I think this is an interesting choice to go to Egypt for a few reasons here. See, at the time, northern Egypt, where they were headed, was pretty much an entirely Jewish community. It was probably two or three million Jews, in, which is a lot of people at the time, in that area. It was about two or three million Jews, right? And this area was known to be one of the most poor, impoverished communities within the Jewish community. I mean, it was the low of the low in society. There was no money. People were eating off scraps. It was just poor. And so God is telling Joseph in the middle of the way, wake up, leave cozy Bethlehem. Hey, there's a few hundred people. It's, it's, like, it's like Jacksonville. You're on a lake. It's nice. It's cozy. But leave cozy Bethlehem, and I want you to go to Egypt, where there's two or three million other people, and they're living in poverty. Go there, because someone's going to come and try to kill Jesus. So, so naturally, Joseph, he's kind of picked up the picture at this point. He's had enough angels appear to him in dreams that he knew what to do. So he gets up. He takes his family to Egypt. So they go, they go straight south down to northern Egypt. Now, here's what's crazy about this. The trip from Bethlehem to Egypt, just picture this. The trip from Bethlehem to Egypt was not a particularly hard one at the time because you could kind of head over, hop on the Nile, and work your way down. But that's not the route they took. They went straight south. 
That would be like walking right through the Rockies. I mean, this is just complete mountainous terrain, up and down, exhausting. Uh, they really have a newborn baby. This is not a, the route you generally go. But God knew this, sending him that direction, because he knew you were nearly impossible to track on that route. Nearly impossible. So God sends Joseph and his family down a, an impossible path to get down to northern Egypt in, with a newborn baby to flee from Herod. Can you feel this? Just imagine this. God's like, hey, get up, move somewhere else, and I'm not gonna t- I'll tell you when to leave. Okay. That's, that's, I mean, I, I'm not good at not having a game plan. Can you imagine God telling you, hey, go get a new job, I'll tell you when to leave that job? Would you be like, okay, and? Like, that's it. So, so Joseph has to go to a new land with a newborn baby, with a new wife, that's living in poverty, he's gotta provide for his family, provide for the savior of the world with no game plan. All he knows is someone's trying to kill his son. That's all he knows. As a soon-to-be father in about two or three months, I I cannot imagine this change. If anything, I wanna make life cozier. I wanna make life cozier. I don't wanna run to an impoverished community living in poverty where people are trying to, to steal and it's just a, a poor community, much less people are trying to kill my son. But God knew and still knows what was best. See, God knew that the enemy wanted to destroy this little boy. The enemy wanted to destroy young Jesus, not because he would become the savior. We talk like that. It's because he was, already was the savior. At this moment, even in Jesus' life, he is the savior of the world and is beginning his work in doing so. Revelation 12 refers to this tension when it says this, then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and the crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant, and she cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. Then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and with seven crowns on his head. His tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky and he threw them to the earth. He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour the baby as soon as it was born. She gave birth to a son who was to rule all the nations with an iron rod and her child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up to God, to his throne. And the woman fled to the wilderness and where God had prepared a place to care for her for 1,260 days. The enemy wanted to destroy Jesus. He wanted to destroy Jesus through Herod's death squad. God saw this and preserved the life of, God the Father saw this, preserved the life of his son, Jesus the Christ. See, this plan of preserving the life of God the Son, it, it, it was completely predicted. This is crazy. This is prophesied. We see this in Hosea 11.1. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him and I called my son out of Egypt. So 400, 500 years before, God knew and spoke to his prophet Hosea, hey, there's going to be a guy named Herod. He's not going to like Jesus very much. And he's going to try to kill Jesus. And I'm going to send my son to Egypt. And that's where my son's going to come out of. And so this happens. Isn't it crazy how even reactionary behavior ends up being the work of God? Isn't it crazy how reactionary behavior, what feels like is a momentary change, is actually the plan of God? 
This isn't audible, right? This isn't the plan, this isn't audible. But then we find out in hindsight, wait, no, it was the plan. It wasn't an audible. The son in this instance, in Hosea, is Jesus. Matthew is quoting Hosea to point to the fact that God had a plan here. The situation that Joseph finds himself in was planned out long, long before he was there. In fact, I would argue that we can often find ourselves in very similar situations to Joseph. See, it could be ra random changes in our life that we feel like we're having to call audibles that God has thrown us into and we're like, oh God, what are you doing? What are you doing? This, this was not what you had planned, right? You called Zach to ministry. What are you doing putting him in a technology company? What are you doing? This is not what you had planned. But then you look back in hindsight and you realize, oh, that was the plan. It was my understanding that was wrong. And so we see that God's sovereignty can push us into places that seem irrational, like moving to poor Egypt, a foreign land, becoming a refuge, a refugee. However, if you've lived as a believer more than like, I don't know, like two weeks, you've probably noticed how God always seems to work more clearly in hindsight, right? God seems to work more clearly in hindsight. When we look forward, we have no idea, but when we look back, it makes a lot of sense. God works in hindsight. And, and, and even more so, God tends to work through our weakness, which leads on to this next point, that, that God's sovereignty does not prevent weakness and sinfulness from spreading. It can, but it doesn't have to, which is why we see uh, uh, Herod's actions here in the next verses, 16 through 18. It says, Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under. Based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance, Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. And this section is so popular, but there's so much missed in it. There's so much missed in this. This action of Herod is, is brutal. It's, it's infanticide. It's the, it's the killing of babies. It's killing of newborns. It's gross. We talk about this maybe in the realms of, of abortion, or we talk about this in the realms of Jesus coming to the earth, but we don't talk about this in the evil act that it was, in that this was the entrance of our Savior. Within six months, he's fleeing a death squad. When I was six months old, I was pooping. That's it. But within six months of our Savior, he's running from a death squad. And it's interesting, I, I, I learned that this event in history, so during the, like the Herod's dynasty, right, Herod the Great, you have a lot of historical writings. People would just write about his actions, like a news report. And we don't actually have any historical writings in this event. Uh, Josephus was one of the great historians who would write about Herod, but he skipped this event. The only, uh, the only record of this action we have is actually from scripture here. And it's interesting because Herod, it's because Herod apparently did this multiple times. Herod was an evil man. Herod was an evil man. Uh, legends say that um, there was a young and popular competitor of Herod the Great, a high priest that had a drowning accident in a pool that was only a couple feet deep. 
uh, I learned that apparently at an, he was enraged at one of his wives, so he had her strangled. Herod was also deceived into having two innocent sons executed, and on his own deathbed, Herod had another son executed. One historical writer is quoted in saying that it was better to be one of Herod's pigs than his sons. Herod was an evil man, and his evil acts were numerous, which means that this event was just another event in Herod's reign, this event in Bethlehem. Even more so, I think we have a picture in our mind that this event in Bethlehem where, where Herod has all the babies slaughtered that are two and under was like hundreds of babies. Bethlehem was actually a really tiny community. So if you, if you count out at the average family having probably one to two children, one being two and under would probably limit it about to, a, to about a dozen children being killed. About a dozen, not like 300, 400, 500, about 12 kids would be killed, which is still horrendous, but it's not, it's not newsworthy in like the historical documents, which is a huge point. Do you think Joseph found out about this event? So Joseph and his family are over here in Egypt, right? They're over here in Egypt just chilling, trying to make ends meet. And they know, okay, I know six months ago I was told to flee from Herod. Has anything happened? Did I, ha did I have to leave? We don't have money on the, or food on the table. Do, do I have to leave Bethlehem? Can you imagine that thought process? Do you think he heard, oh, I'm so glad we left. There was a, some kids slaughtered in, in Bethlehem. He may have. But we don't know that. All we know is that he had to follow God blindly. He had to follow God blindly, trusting that he knew what was up. What was up? This wasn't newsworthy at the time because Herod did so many acts like this. But it was newsworthy in Scripture because when we look in hindsight, we see God's faithfulness. This horrendous, evil, disgusting act. was also prophesied. Again, it's twice in six verses. Jeremiah 31.15 says, A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. So this, this, this quote from Jeremiah, uh, it, it's, it's referring to figurative weeping of Rachel, Rachel from Genesis, if you remember. Fun fact, Rachel was buried in Bethlehem. And she's weeping in Jeremiah for the Babylonian captivity. And then Matthew's picking it up here saying, hey, our Jesus is in captivity in Egypt. And now, figuratively, Rachel is weeping, mourning for the death of these children. That, that there's continuous connections to the scriptural account here. This is crazy to me. Now, here's what really blows my mind. Joseph remains faithful in this. He moves. He goes. This event happens, and he trusts the Lord and does so. God tells him to get up. He goes, and then this, 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 this genocide occurs. But Jesus is safe because Joseph was faithful. He didn't say, God, I, I need a sign. I need, I'm going to put my T-shirt outside, and if it's wet from the dew in the morning, I'll go. No, he didn't, he didn't say, God, I'm going to pray about this for two weeks, and then you, then you will decide. No, the angel came to him and said, hey, dude, you need to get out of here. Oh, by the way, go south, because it's going to be harder to track. And so they go, and Jesus is safe in an impoverished community from Herod's death squad. And in the midst of the pain that I'm sure Joseph was feeling, he probably had no idea 
how better the situation he was than staying in cozy Bethlehem. God's sovereignty does not prevent weakness and sinfulness from spreading. God's, God's sovereignty, God's leadership is, a, is the vessel that carries us through the fallenness of the world. We stink at understanding this. I think, and I've seen this before in paintings, and I think we think this, that, that God's sovereignty, God's leadership, God's guidance in our life is like a lighthouse. And we're on a boat in the middle of a storm, and we're like, oh, there's the light. There's God's leadership, if I, God's guidance, God's sovereignty. If I can just get to that lighthouse, I'll be safe. When in reality, a lot of times, the lighthouse is a distraction. God's sovereignty is a wave in the midst of the storm. It's a part of the suffering that is pushing your boat forward into the storm. Have you felt this in the midst of cancer? Have you felt this in the midst of pain where you're like, God, where is my lighthouse? And then you realize, oh wait, you're one of the waves. This, 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 this Egypt, this poverty, impoverished community, this is part of your leadership, God. This suffering that I'm in, this is you, isn't it? You're not safe, but you are good. It doesn't prevent weakness and sinfulness from spreading because we live in a fallen world. God's sovereignty is like a wave in the midst of the storm pushing us into uncomfort, pushing us into pain because it requires dependence. And basically, if we look back to Christian history, it is the same one, two stories. It is pain that leads to dependence or pain that leads to destruction. And it happens over and over again. You look at Hollywood, you see the pain leads to destruction. You look to the church, you see pain that leads to dependence. That's it. You look to politics, you see pain that leads to destruction. It's the same story. You, we always joke that, that, that pastors preach the same message over and over again. That's because it is the same message. Pain that leads to one of two things, destruction or dependence. You get to decide. And God's leadership, his sovereignty, is using the weakness to push you. <clears throat> using fallenness. Maybe you find yourself in a storm. A storm of anxiety, a storm of sickness, a storm of exhaustion. A storm of wealth, a storm of fear, a storm of grief, or a storm of loneliness. Maybe you're heading into a season of life that you know is going to be undoubtedly harder than you have a previous experience. In fact, I know this is probably the case because every season that comes is probably going to be harder because it's one that's been unexperienced. And it's even scarier when you realize that God's sovereignty does not always protect us from the consequences of a fallen world. Rather, his sovereignty, his leadership, protects us from us getting in the way of his plan. Look at Jonah. This moves us on to our final section of this, of this passage, pointing to that God's sovereignty always has the big picture in mind. Verse 19 says, When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother to the land of Israel, because those who were trying to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel and with Jesus and his mother. But when he learned that the new ruler of Judah was Herod's son Archelaus, or Archelaus as I like to call him, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned in a dream, 
he left for the region of Galilee, so the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophets had said, that he will be called a Nazarene. Here we see God's guidance again. Herod the Great passes away. We don't know the exact time that this happens. We don't know exactly when they return to Israel, but we know that it was soon after Herod the Great's death, probably six-ish months, that Herod Archelaus was made king. So whenever this happened, Rome would come in. They'd look at where Herod the Great had his will, who would get the reign, and then Rome would say, okay, we'll honor the will, and then Herod Archelaus, the son, would become the ruler. That was basically how this would go. And so Rome came in. They decided, okay, Archelaus, you're good to go. You have control, and they stepped out. It's interesting that apparently he was first admired because, I mean, Herod didn't leave big shoes to fill, right? He was evil. He was gross. But after a, a short while, Archelaus proved himself to be a terrible leader, and it's rumored that actually Jew, Jewish believers in Jerusalem were writing to Rome, asking them to take control. You know how much they hated Rome. They were asking Rome to take control of Jerusalem because apparently Archelaus was doing such a bad job. And of course, we see Joseph saw this because he's warned in a dream, hey, Archelaus is king. And so then he uses what uh, I read commentators like to call his divine common sense and goes to Nazareth. And so that divine common sense fulfills a prophecy. Joseph is protecting his family. He's like, all right, Mary, it's time to go back to Jerusalem. He goes to sleep. Hey, Joseph, Archelaus is king. He wakes up. Oh, hey, sweetheart, I heard Nazareth is nice. Let's go to Nazareth. I'm a little scared of that Archelaus guy. Have you heard about the protests in Jerusalem? Have you heard about the unrest? Have you heard about all that? Ah, we should go to Nazareth if we want to raise Jesus in safety. So they go to Nazareth. Fun fact, Nazareth was Roman ruled. And Jews looked to those in Nazareth, believe it or not, as sympathizers. So yeah, they hated Rome, but they also wanted Rome to take control. They were kind of all over the place. But they looked to the, the Nazarenes as sympathizers of Rome, Jewish, uh, Jewish Nazarenes, because they lived under Roman rule. And they were living in Roman culture, which was Greek in nature, not Jewish in nature. So they were different, and the Jews didn't like that they were different. You know why this is crazy? Because Jesus, in only a few years of his life, has already lived in a Jewish community, and he's lived in a Gentile community, making him not the savior of the Jews, but the savior of the world. In three or four years of his life, he's already set up to be the Jesus Christ on the cross and the resurrector, not Jesus the boy, because he's living in both situations. Every move was strategic to his role. This boy doesn't become God later like many people believe. People in, in adoptionism, that is so popular that Jesus was somehow a man and when the dove came down and and he was baptized, he became God. That is so popular. Let me clarify. He was God the Son at this moment. And he was fully God, fully man, and God knew, the Father knew that he was the Savior of the world, that he knew he was going to die on a cross, knew he was going to save the thief on the cross, knew he was going to do three years of ministry, and he said, hey, I'm going to send you to Egypt so you can learn Jewish culture. I'm going to send you to Nazarene so you can learn Gentile culture, and then you're going to go hang out with all of them when you're 30. crazy when you look at hindsight, right? Aren't we glad that the Bible speaks in hindsight? Isaiah 11.1 1 is what's, what's referenced here when it says that we've, it fulfills prophecy. 
uh, Jesus growing up in Nazareth. It says, out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing the fruit from the old root. Okay, so a little explanation here to, to prove that this fulfills prophecy. Jewish literature did, loved to play on words. They were very punny. <laughs> they, were, they really were. And so Jew, he, he, Hebraic literature likes to play on words. So the Greek, or excuse me, not Greek, Hebrew word for branch is Nesser, uh, coming from the same word of Nazareth. Nazareth comes from the word Nesser, and so this Nesser, that he would be from the branch-bearing fruit from the old root is a, is, is a very common way that Isaiah did it a lot, would basically say, hey, he's, he's coming from Nazareth. It's a play on words. This was prophecy, 500 years in the making. God worked through puns. <laughs> It's a super common Hebraic literature. So, so 500, 600 years ahead of, of, of this event, we have Isaiah penning these words that God is giving him that later are fulfilled by Joseph's divine common sense of protecting his family. So Joseph goes to Nazareth, which is then where Jesus claims his heritage, Jesus of Nazareth. Are you seeing, are you seeing this? Are you seeing how God the Father led every step of the way? And how it seems in the moment, I imagine if, if you can picture yourself there, how every one of these moments would feel so exhaustingly reactionary. Right? Just as if you're in the hospital, not knowing what's wrong with you. You're in the emergency room with stomach pain, and the doctor's telling you something, and you're like, sure, whatever. And the same level of just quick change. This is happening in Joseph's life, but is in reality God's plan from the start. I want you to see something here. God's sovereignty always has the big picture in mind. And I'm not saying our big picture, I mean the big picture. He sees eternity as an entirety. He sees his divine plan. You and I, the best we can do is look a month ahead, a year ahead, five years. Maybe you can look 30 years ahead. But God is looking over entirety as a whole at his divine plan and then at your life and says, this is how my son Zach fits into this. And this is what he's going to do here, here, and here. And I know to him it's going to feel crazy. I know it's going to feel like a quick change, but in reality, I've got control. A little over three years ago, while in college, I got a job in an IT department there. And I mainly got it because all my, friend, all my friends work there and they worked with my class schedule. That was literally the reason for working there. And I was okay with technology. I was like, I like playing video games, that was about it. So I applied for a job and got it. I began working and I, I really enjoyed the people I worked with. I didn't care too much for the work as I felt it wasn't where I would spend my career, but I, I learned an immense amount while I was there. Then my senior year after having worked in the IT department for about a year, I came home for spring break. Tired of school, tired of life, tired of seeing the same thing for four years, I was just done mentally. I was ready to come home from spring break and turn my brain off. However, my amazing and loving sister really wanted me to join her for Bible study in Nacogdoches. Really wanted me to go, and I didn't want to go. I had just flown in like the night before. I was tired, but I went. And while at Bible study, this really pretty, pretty girl named Hannah Jones came up and sat next to me. <laughs> what I later found out was actually uh, pity, because I was sitting alone, uh, turned into a, an awesome conversation. And uh, that conversation turned into uh, a few texts, which led to coffee. 
and that coffee led to a few dates over the course of my, uh, my uh, spring break. And so after my week or two of spring break, I went back to Moody and I was like, hey, Hannah, you're cool, let's chat. That's basically it. So I went back to Moody in Chicago and we FaceTimed every night for about three hours. <laughs> on Saturdays, often six hours, we would talk and talk and talk and we really enjoyed it. Uh, and then after about four months of that, we had been, I guess you could call it dating. <laughs> we were just FaceTiming. Uh, we were FaceTiming for four months and uh, uh, Hannah came and joined me for graduation at Moody despite only knowing me for four months. But she came up to Chicago and joined us for my graduation. And then that summer I was able to spend a summer in East Texas and catch up on those few months and we were able to hang out. And then at the end of summer I, I moved to Fort Worth to attend seminary and also got a job at the technology department at the seminary. Hannah just happened to be moving to Fort Worth also, but I think she was chasing me. <laughs> she went to Fort Worth as well and we continued dating for a few months. It's, and then it's September of that year, I proposed. During our engagement, I felt that God was leading me away from the seminary and I took a job in a large church as a director of technology. This again was another role I didn't really see myself long term, but at least I was in a church. But I was just happy to be in a church, remember that. So uh, I started in that church, Hannah and I soon got married after I started that job, and uh, this job proved to be significantly more than I had expected. I ended up being the only technology person in the 10th largest church in the country, supporting 10 campuses in three states with about 700 computers. I of course felt woefully unprepared for this role, but I, I went in every day and learned what I needed to for that day, and YouTube became my best friend. It ended up being the hardest job I had ever worked because I, I was just trying to stay afloat working 70 some hours a week. In the midst of this, when Hannah and I were about three months into marriage, we found out Hannah was pregnant. While we were both very excited, we had no idea what this would look like for us to have a baby in a one-bedroom studio apartment. And for me to be working late into the evening every single night, and often on weekends. But we asked for God's guidance, so I kept pushing in the midst of this overwhelming anxiety that I had from this job. And then in October, I received a call from a tech company in Dallas with a job opening and had seen my resume online. And uh, I wasn't very interested at first, but I took the call and took an interview and took a second interview and ended up getting a call receiving, or giving me a job offer. I felt God had called me into vocational ministry, but I took this job as a system madman at a technology company in Dallas, managing about 70 companies in both Austin and Dallas. Once I took that position, my wife and I began searching for a church to get plugged into, and within the single week after we moved from that former church, we found the church we wanted to be a part of. One week. And so we'd, be, we'd begun digging into that body and getting to know everyone. But here's what I've learned over the course of the last couple of years. God had a plan. When I took a job in the IT department at Moody Bible Institute, I had no idea that God had planned for me to work at full time in technology. I had no idea that God would call me to serve in the private sector at all. I had always served in a church. In fact, when I interviewed, the guys were like, tell me about all these church jobs you've had. And I was like, let me tell you. And on top of that, when I took a job at this church and I overworked myself, I never knew I could do it, but I ended up learning the skills necessary in a period of nine months that often would take two or three years to learn. So God had planted me in this position so that I could learn the skills I needed for the job I have now. 
One step further, when I took this job in, in, in technology, I had no idea that God would be placing me in a company like I am now that's so supportive of my wife and our new baby. But God knew. See, God had a big picture in mind. I've reached every change. I have moved three times and have had two jobs in the last one year. But every single one of those changes, every decision, every step has led toward a moment that I now find myself in. Every moment led up to the moment now. Just like that magic trick, every step was pivotal toward the final product, and now I know that every little change was pivotal to where I now find myself. See, God knew. God knew. See, God had the big picture in mind. Every change, every decision, every step was a part of his plan. Don't get me wrong, this is not, my story is not a story of success at all. My wife and I are by no mark at a point of achieving success. In about two months, we're going to enter the hardest season we've had yet. I am scared to death of diapers. <laughs> Entering the hardest season yet. But here's what I know. Man, God knew the enemy wanted to destroy Jesus. God knew that the enemy was, would use Herod by sending men to Bethlehem to kill Jesus. God knew that Egypt was a, a safe place that the southern route, while difficult, would hide their tracks. God knew that that large Jewish community in Egypt would give young Jesus, the Jew, the humanly experienced living among the Jewish people he would need for his ministry. God knew that growing up in Israel, specifically in Nazareth, when Herod died, would, send, or, or would, would be exactly what he needed to minister to a Gentile culture. God knows. God has a plan, and God knew the weaknesses of Joseph and used those weaknesses to push his plan forward. He knew Joseph would fear Archelaus and would take his family to Nazareth instead. It is then God's knowing that allows him to lead us in the midst of a fallen world. God's knowledge. It is his knowledge, his sovereignty that allows us to be the, the one we can put our trust in even in the midst of weakness. I mean, God's sovereignty and guidance works hand in hand with our weakness to bring us into dependence on him. God's sovereignty and guidance works hand in hand with our weakness to bring us in dependence with him. This truth is rocking my world. I don't like weakness. I don't like it at all. I, I don't have a place for it and in, in my own expectations. Ironically, it's actually my weaknesses, whether my own or even the weaknesses around me in the world that God uses to push his plan forward in my life. I mean, look back at history. Moses was not good at speaking, so God made him a voice for Israel. Elijah was an outcast, so God made him an example. Solomon was a vain man, so God made him a poet. Mary was a 16-year-old virgin, so God made her the mother of Jesus. Peter was overzealous, so God made him a martyr. Paul was a terrorist Christian, so God made him an apostle. Martin Luther was a perfectionist, so God made him a teacher of grace. John Calvin was an academic egghead, so God made him a mentor to students. Charles Spurgeon would vomit from anxiety because he hated preaching in front of large groups of people, so God made him the most famous preacher of all time. <laughs> the list can go on and on and on, but God will always use our weakness, our struggle, our strife to move his plan forward in the world. As we enter a new year, as we enter the season of New Year's resolutions that you'll forget about in a week, 
hear these words. Growth in your life is a work of God, not you. Growth in your life is a work of the Lord. His plan for you is set. Every step is leading to the next step. Your faith in him is all that is expected. No trial, no temptation, no hurt or pain can take this away from you. And it's so interesting that God put this sermon in our schedule after this last week's events. This last week, an individual who was so intimately connected to many of us in this church, Miss Johns, went to be with the Lord. And I know for some of you that were closer, you, you, you wake up on Christmas and you're just like, what? Why? For some of the youths that were close, you, you have no idea. You, you go through these seasons of life where you begin to think that you have an idea of how life works, then something happened that throws that off. And you realize, oh my gosh, I actually don't have control. And you're reminded, wow, God has a plan. And it doesn't involve my leadership. For those of you who, who do, maybe, not, maybe it's not grieving for the John Stanley, maybe it's grieving for your own loss in the Christmas season, or maybe it's, it's loneliness in the holidays, maybe it's, it's not having enough money to pay the bills, or overworking. You're in a season of life where you just sit back on the couch at five in the morning before you go to work and you're just like, why? What's next? You feel like you're on the Titanic and you're like, the only direction is down. But then something happens. Something happens that reminds you that you're not in control. You think you have life in control for a short season. You start working in a technology company for three months and you're like, man, I'm kind of doing this thing. And then something happens in your life and you're like, oh wait, I don't have control. And that's on purpose. Because God wants you to know that you aren't in control, he's in control. You will live every day of your life waking up knowing you're too weak. You will wake up every morning knowing you're not strong enough because God wants you into dependence on him. He made David a short shepherd, the king of Israel, because he knew he was too weak. He knew that he would fall with Bathsheba. You wake up and you feel weak, don't you? I, every one of you do, because I do. And that weakness you feel is living in the reality of being saved in your soul, but not saved in the flesh as of yet. And here's what's cool, it's in process. That's called sanctification. It's now, but not yet. You are saved in God's eyes. You are perfected in your soul, but your body is weak. Your flesh is weak. And when you wake up not knowing how that bill is gonna be paid, you are reminded that God has control. And then that random check appears in the mail and you're like, where did this even come from? It's unmarked. Or that random promotion at work. Or maybe, maybe success or victory doesn't come. And it's just more pain. And you know that the only reason you are succeeding and pushing through pain is because God is in control. My dear friends, there's a term in theology called common grace. 
common grace is the idea that even those who don't have a relationship with Christ are experiencing the grace of Christ. So by living in this world unsaved, just because God has this world under his power, his control, those who don't have Christ are feeling the benefits of his grace. It's called common grace. And then, then, then you have um, um, grace, specific grace. You have divine grace. You have salvation grace. That's grace given to you. And that grace that you wake up in as a, as, as a born-again Christian, you feel the benefits of common grace that, oh, God, you've got this under control. And then you feel the benefits of salvific, salvation grace where you're like, oh, I'm clean. Dear ones, I think I've used this verse. I've preached, I mean, I don't have any, how many times I've preached, but I've probably used this verse in like 90% of my sermons, and I'm going to use it in this one. Hebrews 12 says this. It's talking about pressing on in the faith, and then it picks up, says, we do this, we press on by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. Press on. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Joseph was so scared. You can see it in the way the text is worded. Matthew is, is, is giving us emotion here, saying that, that, that Joseph felt he needed to go to Nazareth. You can feel that emotion. I hope you see that. And it was that fear and emotion that pushed him toward keeping his eyes on Jesus. I have gone through seasons of complete success and, and prosperity. And then I've gone through seasons where I am just stuck in anxiety. And I find the seasons where I'm stuck in anxiety, I tend to be a whole lot closer with God. But yet we still run from our weaknesses. We still run from those weaknesses. And I'm not saying you want to champion your weaknesses, like, hey, I have depression. That's not what we want to do. But we want to give those weaknesses to God and say, you know what? You're using this. The enemy can't distract me with this. The enemy can't distract me with that. This season I'm in, oh, it's just a season. Jesus was only dead for three days, but he was resurrected. They lived in Egypt for only a couple years, then they went to Nazareth. I mean, seasons are just seasons because God grows you, preparing you for the next season. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever looked back at your life? I know I'm doing this now. Have you ever looked back at your season and said, man, if last year didn't happen, I wouldn't be ready for this year. Have you ever had that? I know I have. Dear ones, press on. For those of you are, that are grieving a re this recent loss in the church, be reminded by the, by the saving grace of Christ that he is working within you and even using your weaknesses. And then if you find yourself in a storm, that often it's a fish that's swallowing you, swallowing you up and taking you to God's plan. Everything under the sun is within his power, as Ecclesiastes tells us. Joseph had to trust his holy father. And nothing has changed since then. All we have to do in this life is trust our Holy Father. 
Thankfully, we have a father who experienced this life as Jesus. It is as simple as saying, God, you are in control. I give nothing to this relationship, and you bring all of it. For if I bring anything to this relationship, it's in vain, because you brought everything at the cross. That's a daily prayer. That's something I'm trying to begin to pray with myself every day. Dear ones, God loves you. Gosh, he loves you. As you're going into a new year, and it's, it's going to be a crazy year, whether it be financial struggle or sickness, as many people have, or poli politics or, or jobs, whatever, it's going to just be a chaotic year. Be reminded that one of God's best characteristics is making order in the midst of chaos. And in those moments of overwhelming anxiety, just, just thank the Lord for his goodness. Ask him for strength and push forward. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. God, thank you for your, your divine guidance through all history. And it's so cool to look back at how you, you preserved the life of your son through, through prophecy made hundreds of years before and then enacted through quick decision-making. God, thank you for having everything under your power and your control. Lord, I ask that you remind us as a body that we are here to support one another, to love on one another. God, I ask that, that you help us grow together, that, that the crazier the world gets, the more intimate we get. And God, I pray that you just rest, rest, restore our mind, restore our thinking, restore our hearts so that we're programmed when pain comes that we come to dependence on you. And God, help us remember that it is your sovereignty using our weakness to bring us into that dependence. God, we love you so much. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Have a good week and Happy New Year. Y'all have a good one. You're dismissed.